Revelation chapter 5, we're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 14. The topic, the Lamb of God takes the seven-sealed scroll from the right hand of God the Father. Title of our message, I pray the Lord his scroll to take. That word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning for bringing us together. Uh, Lord, we are very excited to study your word, not because it's the revelation, but because it is the revelation of you to our lives and to our hearts. I pray that we would keep prophecy in perspective, Lord. It's practical and it draws us closer in our relationship with you. That's the purpose. Lord, we want to leave this place looking more like you than when we came in. We're told that we look through a glass dimly, but as we see you, we're changed from moment to moment, glory to glory, into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. There's always the one. In the Lord of the Rings, it was Aragorn. He was the one true king who could wield Anduril, Isildur's broken sword reforged. Speaking of swords, only Arthur, the one true king, could pull Excalibur from the anvil. If you're a fan of the Matrix, I'll pray for you. Neo was the one. Emmett is the one in the Lego movie. He's that special one who will find the piece of resistance capable of stopping the cradle. The Apostle John was taken to heaven in the spirit. He saw a seven-sealed scroll in the right hand of God. A strong angel issued a call for someone worthy to open the scroll. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. John despaired. Just then, dramatically, the one stepped forward who was worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb of God. He is Jesus. We are beyond privilege to witness with John one of the most significant moments in the history of the created universe. It's a day Jesus has been waiting upon since his ascension into heaven. All of creation groans waiting for it. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you witness the beginning of the end of weeping. And number two, you witness the beginning of the end of waiting. Let's take a look at weeping in verses one through five. If you want to make a movie about the earth, it needs to be in the horror genre. Every minute of every day, day after day, unspeakable sufferings are experienced worldwide. Just this past couple of weeks here in Hanford, We've had some tremendous tragedies uh, involving various individuals. Uh, imagine the, the things that are happening around the world. God gets blamed. Why doesn't he do something? What God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do can be discovered in this text. Verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. It is common in Bible commentary to become sidetracked by speculating on matters that will not be resolved with certainty. Anything scholars are still arguing about centuries later probably isn't going to be resolved. This scroll in God's right hand, the physical scroll itself, there's a lot of discussion about the exact placement of the seven seals. Some say they run the length of the scroll, others that they are all at one end of the scroll. Comparisons are made to Roman scrolls that we know uh, were common at the time. 
But the truth is, the actual scroll isn't described well enough to come to a definitive conclusion. One detail that we can comment on is the writing on the back of the scroll. For most any ancient scroll, it summarizes what is written inside so that you can distinguish it from other scrolls uh, the way we have book bindings that have titles and authors' names on them so that you can pick off a certain book from the shelf. God the Father has in his right hand a scroll sealed with seven seals. As Jesus opens each successive seal, we see on earth an accelerating progression of the wrath of God that Jesus described as great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. The scroll is the operational plan for the seven-year great tribulation that prepares the way for the second coming of Jesus. Each time Jesus opens a a seal, we'll see that things are happening on the earth and they they continue to progress faster and faster and faster until the final uh, seal is opened. Verse 12, then I saw a strong, uh, verse two, excuse me. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Some angels must work out more than others at God's gym. This is a strong angel. I would think that all angels are strong, but they, they want to specify. You might remember in the book of Daniel that on his way to see Daniel, the angel Gabriel was delayed by a supernatural being he called the Prince of Persia. So this person, this being had uh, strength over Gabriel. And so Gabriel dialed up Michael, the archangel, who came and tagged him out and took his place so that Gabriel could continue. So angels are at various strengths. We're witnessing a very solemn future ceremony in chapter 5. It is a one-and-done ceremony. It hasn't happened yet. It will happen in the future just before the Great Tribulation, and we're witnessing it. If you want to understand how that works with time and time travel and all that, you can find a lot of really good scientific information on time travel in the Avengers Endgame movie. Chapter 4 is like a prelude to this uh, ceremony. There we saw John representing the church, resurrected and raptured from earth to heaven. We will be evacuated before God's wrath begins to proceed. God's throne was set in chapter 4, indicating a readiness. 24 subordinate thrones were set for supportive divine counsel of supernatural beings. Beautiful living creatures gave God praise. And 24 beings tossed crowns as they prostrated themselves before the Lord God, singing, You are worthy, O Lord. It all raised excitement and expectation for this strong angel to step forward with his call. Then verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, describe all the possible locations of men and angels, both good and fallen. It could be that this angel's strength is his voice. His call will be heard in all of those places. In case you're wondering, Annalisa Flanagan, an Irish teacher in Ireland, holds the world record for the loudest voice, 121.7 decibels. Pretty loud. Some say it's the equivalent of a jet engine, but um, it just... How would you like to have her for fourth grade? Fans of the MCU will recall the scene where a few of the Avengers try to lift Thor's hammer. They can't do it. 
The mighty Thor suggests that he is the only one, he alone is worthy to wield it. I'm pretty sure no one came forward to attempt taking the scroll from the Father's right hand. The strong angel's call is a suggestive pause that builds anticipation for what is coming next in this ceremony. And so unlike in the movies where you'd have a bunch of people thinking, oh, I can, you know, take the sword out of the stone or lift Thor's hammer or whatever it might be, uh, this is a suggestive pregnant pause just to emphasize that they are waiting for the one. Verse 4, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. John did more than shed a solitary tear or cry. The word wept much describes something more like convulsing. His crying was out of control. It confirms that there was a pause of some length after the strong angel's call. John uh, John rather understood at least this much. Heaven was seeking the one. And unless he stepped forth, there was no hope to redeem mankind and restore creation. At the very least, until the one stepped forth, things would continue just as they were. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Did John interrupt the ceremony and need to be told to quit weeping? Well, as far as I can tell, it was part of the ceremony, though it would be a part of it that John was unaware of. Like being called on stage during a performance to become a participant and not just a spectator. Knowing John the way Jesus does, it followed that the apostle of love would weep for the world's tragic condition. Put John in a situation like that with heightened awareness in heaven, the call going out for the one who could you know, open the scroll and end this current timeline and bring us to eternity and no one coming forward, John was for sure going to break down. We live in a pause between the ascension of Jesus and his return to resurrect and rapture the church. Weeping is very appropriate. Lots of weeping goes on and will go on uh, during this time because of the many tragic and terrible things that happen. But so is the counsel, do not weep. We must gently encourage those who suffer to look to Jesus. Whether by words or by example, just our presence, whatever it is, we must have this counsel, do not weep. A.W. Tozer said, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who makes sense out of everything in the world. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, many of them were dying They were worried about the destination and the destiny of their dead loved ones because they didn't quite understand its relationship to the rapture of the church. And so Paul explained all that for them. But at one point he said, don't grieve as those who have no hope. Especially as Christians, we have hope. And, you know, you're going to cry, you're going to grieve, you're human when terrible things happen. But we are to live above our circumstances at some point. Now, I don't recommend you go around, you know, thinking you have the ministry of telling people to quit crying. I counsel you that. But we have to have as our goal leading people into the hope of Jesus Christ because he is the only hope. You, if you're a believer and they were believers, you will see your loved one again. And you will see them for eternity. Those kinds of things are true, and we need to make sure that people understand that. 
One of the 24 said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. This is one of the superlative lines in all the history of the universe. It proclaims the incredible time in future history when God will directly and openly intervene in men's affairs to give mankind one last opportunity to be saved before the coming of Jesus. A commentator said this, Here, Judah's noblest son is fitly called its lion. It aptly pictures kingly might and boldness. The one is simultaneously the root of David. The Greek squad says it can mean that the one was root from which David was born, such, uh, that is, David's ancestor. And so he is both the ancestor and the descendant of David. Do you have anybody like that in your family? No. You don't have an ancestor who descends from you. It sounds like a riddle in the dark. How can a person be your ancestor and your offspring? Jesus once used this to stump the religious leaders who were hating on him. He said in the Gospel of Luke, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So David says the Messiah is David's Lord, but he's also called his offspring. How is that possible? And then we read in the last chapter of the Bible, uh, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. So there's absolutely no question. Jesus is root and offspring by virtue of coming in human flesh through the nation of Israel as the unique God-man to die for the sins of the world, to redeem mankind and to restore creation. And so why doesn't God do something? Well, he has done something. He sent a willing Jesus to earth as God in human flesh to suffer and die in our place, thereby saving those who would believe. He is doing something. He's calling out a people for himself, the church, by sending human servants to preach the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And he's going to do something. He will unleash upon the earth a time of trouble such as has never been nor ever will be again. We call it the grace of wrath on the grounds that he continues to call sinners to repentance and salvation throughout the length of it. The Scroll and the Savior is heaven's breathtaking seven-year miniseries of the beginning of God ending weeping once for all. There's a lot more wailing to come, but God will end all weeping at some point, except the wailing in the place of eternal conscious torment for those who reject Christ. Uh, and so that's the stage that's being set here. And so we see when God is accused of not doing anything, he's done everything and he's waiting. You witness the beginning of the end of waiting in verses six through 14. I was tempted to give you a list of how much time is wasted throughout our short lifetimes waiting for things. And then I decided it would be a waste of time. So let's just move on. I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John looked to see the lion. He saw the lamb. I'm not an artist. If I was asked to draw what John saw, I'd cut and paste these images and it would end up looking grotesque. We know that heaven and all that is in it is supremely beautiful. 
This portrayal of Jesus is beyond beautiful. When we see him this way, we'll think, okay, that's what John was saying. If you're a big fan of some story, you can be pleasantly surprised at how one of its characters is translated to the screen in a film. Uh, In fact, for me, it's really important because like I said, I'm not very artistic and I'm not very imaginative. And so when I'm looking at a, uh, you know, something in a novel or a book, I can't get a handle on it until they make it into a movie. It's like the portrayal of the Balrog in Lord of the Rings. I think, oh, okay, that's what a Balrog looks like. John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the final and the fulfilling sacrifice that all animal sacrifices in the Bible were merely representing. Right from the get-go in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? God provided them skins to cover their nakedness, and those skins came from sacrificed animals. And from that point forward, how many thousands and millions and millions of uh, sheep and ram and oxen and such were sacrificed uh, in order that Jews could come into the presence of the Lord and uh, enjoy that presence, all pointing towards one final lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. And that's why it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified at the exact moment the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the Jewish temple. They were continuing with their religious ritual while Jesus was ending it on the cross, defeating Satan and sin and death. And then he verified it at his death by having the veil in the temple torn in half from top to bottom. God tore the veil, indicating that man now had full and complete access to their Messiah, to Jesus Christ, and to God the Father. Horns are used in the Bible to represent power. Seven horns would indicate perfect power, or as we might say, omnipotence. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Compare this verse from the fourth chapter of Zechariah. For these seven shall rejoice the eyes of Jehovah, which run to and fro throughout the earth. And so very similar what John says, uh, records, and what Zechariah said. Zechariah 4, we've uh, directed you there before. It's a great little chapter to read. There you'll see that Zechariah is describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the time of Zechariah, in the time of building the second temple. And uh, in order to represent the Holy Spirit, he talks about various things like the seven eyes. And so John saw the lion as the slain lamb of God who was very much alive and poised to execute the operational plan of God's wrath upon the whole earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit likes to remain invisible and he must be depicted by various things. We talked about this last week. We see him in scripture depicted by a dove or by oil or by water or by fire. Uh, in this case, seven eyes. Verse seven, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. There was some choreography involved in Jesus being in the middle of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, and then his movement to take the scroll from God the Father. In relinquishing the scroll, God the Father invested Jesus with the authority to open it and accomplish it. The understanding is that whoever could take that scroll obviously would open it and we would see it being accomplished 
And as it is open, we see that in the book of the Revelation. The Revelation will follow the opening of the seven seals. When the seventh seal is opened, seven trumpets are blown. When the seven trumpet, seventh trumpet is blown, seven bowls of wrath are poured out. When the last bowl is poured out, Jesus returns. And so it, it follows that progression. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living beings uh, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is the final movement of this ceremony. The four and the 24 fall down in acclamation. The 24 hold a harp in one hand and bowls full of incense in the other. People like to make fun of Christians. They say, we'll be on a cloud somewhere playing the harp. I'd like to be able to play the harp, wouldn't you? I don't know anything more beautiful than uh, somebody who can really play a harp. I don't know anything worse than somebody who can't, but uh, except for the bagpipes. Any bagpipe players here before I go on? Anybody play the bagpipes? I can't ever tell if it's good bagpipe playing or not. I, seriously, you've been to funerals. I've been to a lot of funerals. It's an occupational hazard. Uh, but uh, there's usually a bagpiper with doing Amazing Grace. <laughs> Is my first bagpipe, bagpipe in for, uh, never mind. I, I need to, she sells seashells by the seashore. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, where's the peck of pickled pipers Peter Piper picked? Just for those of you who think I'm losing it. Anyway, uh, I have lost my place though. Uh, so now listen to this. You'll like this. This is real. This is, I'm not joking. According to Vincent's word studies, The word for harp signifies an instrument unlike our harp. Rather, it's a lute or a guitar, anciently of a triangular shape with seven strings, afterward increased to 11 strings. The historian Josephus says it had 10 and was played with a plectrum or a small piece of ivory, i.e. a pick. And so the guitars that we're going to play are like Stratocasters. I thought you'd get more excited about that. Incense is the prayers of the saints. Which saints? Probably the ones saved during the Great Tribulation. We're going to read of their prayers uh, a time or two as the Great Tribulation proceeds. This anticipates the seven years as a time when many will heed the warnings and be saved, even though they will most likely experience martyrdom. And so this incense represents the prayers of the saints And even though they haven't been prayed yet in this ceremony, the Lord knows they're coming because he has foreknowledge and obviously omniscience and um, is a representation to us as things are in ceremonies of something symbolic, and that is the prayers of the saints rising before the Lord. And as they sung, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They're going to sing a new song written for the ceremony never heard before. It's going to be number one on the charts for seven years during the Great Tribulation. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version. There it says, you have redeemed us to God. It sounds like these are humans that Jesus died to save, but we've been telling you that they are actually supernatural beings. We talked a lot about it 
when we first met them in chapter four. Uh, but um, it's not wrong to think they're human beings, but the biblical uh, information seems to favor that they are a special order of angels that have something to do with helping God in a subordinate way. We see them in the Old Testament. We see them here. So then why does it say uh, us uh, rather than them? Well, in, there are other translations, and here's how it, they translate this verse. The ESV says, by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The ISV says, with your blood, you purchase people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The NRSV says, by your blood, you ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. So I think you get the idea. We could parade a bunch of other translations. Apparently, you can translate it either us or people. Uh, These translations and many others acknowledge that they are probably not glorified humans who are singing about themselves. They are supernatural beings singing about God's plan to redeem humanity. Jesus' death on the cross is a universal payment for sin by which any human being can potentially be saved. He is the savior of all men in that sense, and he is the particular savior of those who believe. And so there's enough power at the cross in the blood of Jesus Christ to save everyone. No one has to wonder if they are part of a special chosen group that can be saved. If you're a human being, you can be saved. You're not automatically saved. We don't believe in universalism. You're saved when you believe Jesus Christ is the Savior. When you believe God, he credits it to you for righteousness, puts righteousness in your account where sin used to be. It's pictured as Jesus giving you his white robe and him taking upon himself your filthy garments. And so that's what's going on here. God's law given to Israel lists the requirements for someone to act as a redeemer. First of all, he has to be a blood relative who is willing to act as a redeemer. Secondly, he would also in this case have to be God. No mere man who is born a sinner can hope to redeem himself, never mind others from sin and death. Uh, we are, the Bible says we inherit a sin nature. The Bible says sin is put into our account. We, it's imputed to us before we ever actually sin. And then we, as we grow, we commit individual acts of sin. So we're, we're three strikers, you might say. And so no one in that group, no normal, regular, everyday, average human being can act as a redeemer because he or she themselves have to be redeemed. The person who was both God and man would be able to redeem them, but then he would have to pay any outstanding debt. And the debt owed for sin is death. And so you have to have a God-man redeemer who dies to redeem the human race, right? If you understand the problem with human beings, if you understand that the, the, the bottom line problem is sin, it's not nature or nurture in, one's, in the sense that psychologists use it. Uh, it is sin. If you understand that problem, then you realize that there's only one way to solve it, and that is for God to become a man and die in your place. And that's exactly what we teach. And that's exactly what the Bible declares. When the angel cries, who is worthy? He isn't taking applications. It's not a job posting. 
He's announcing that none is worthy except for the one, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Those same translations I just referred to all say have made them kings and priests, and they will reign. And so again, they're singing about what the Lord has done in redeeming the lost human race. The reign they are proclaiming is the millennial kingdom on earth after Jesus' second coming. The church will return with Jesus and share in his earthly reign over the earth as a kingdom of priests. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Annually at the Disneyland Resort, they hold a celebration they call candlelight. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, they have a full orchestra and uh, choirs from all over California uh, up in the train station at the end of Main Street. They have a celebrity guest narrator who reads the gospel story of Luke in between songs. And it's pretty cool, really. Uh, it's hard to believe that they're actually doing it, but they, they didn't do it this year because of COVID, but hopefully they'll continue. But what, the first time we ever saw it, we were surprised because as we're enjoying the orchestra and the singing, all of a sudden uh, there were trumpeters on top of the train station on the roof. The lights went on and they started bugling with these long trumpets and it was really dramatic, really powerful. And so that's kind of the thing that John experiences here, only much greater, obviously. Without warning, yet at the perfect time, John could see and hear innumerable angels adding their voices in this huge crescendo of praise, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. In the millennium, that thousand-year kingdom that's yet future, King Jesus will receive all of these universal accolades. Every knee will bow. He's worthy of this praise even from non-believers. And believe me, there'll be a lot of non-believers in the millennium as well, but Jesus will receive accolades nonetheless. Verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. This all sounds very Narnian to me. You know, uh, creatures in the sea praising the Lord. Mr. Tumnus maybe will be there. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver. The whales from the Star Trek movie. But it seems here that all sentient life everywhere in the universe will acknowledge the power and position of God the Father and of Jesus Christ. And I would include God the Holy Spirit here. He's not specifically mentioned, which is in keeping with his humility in remaining invisible while pointing to Jesus. Now, you, you can't make an argument from silence. Oh, the Holy Spirit is here. But since we know from the rest of the Bible that there is a Holy Spirit, that he is God, that he is one with the others, he is here, uh, only he's keeping himself typically uh, you know, off, uh, off the scenes because he has that humility. Verse 14, then the four living creatures said, amen. The 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. It ain't over till the four living creatures, amen. The 24 must get up at some point earlier in as much as they fall down here a second time. They continue to worship after the amen. And so if you picture this in your mind sort of as a ceremony, 
you can see all these different movements and songs and choreographs and endings and epilogues and all that. It's a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. And so thus comes to a conclusion, this magnificent future moment when the wait will finally be over. And we'll see next time we're together in the Revelation, when we turn the page, so to speak, the great tribulation begins. And so the waiting will end. All waiting will end. Waiting is hard. It encouraged me this week to realize that Jesus waits and knows waiting. Even now, Jesus is on the, at the right hand of the Father on his throne, ready to get up and go through this ceremony and take the scroll and open its seals and get on with this tremendous plan to redeem humanity and to redeem creation. But he waits. And I would put to you that his waiting is more intense than ours. Can you imagine the sinless son of God, all that he's been through in becoming a man and living the life that he lived, being treated the way that he was and being rejected by his own people and then caught up to heaven knowing that God has the plan to solve everything and to get creation and all back into normal, having to wait. And you know, if you're like me, we all do this. Don't you find yourself in certain situations, maybe in maybe every minute of every day saying, Lord, what are you waiting for? Please come. Lord, I've contracted this disease my, or my friend is sick or this just happened in this part of the world or this is going to happen or the world is falling apart. Lord, you know, please end your waiting. I want to be with you. I would submit that the Lord wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. He loves us. Did you ever say to somebody, somebody says, I love you, and you say, I love you more? Jesus, when, he, when you tell Jesus you love him, Jesus says, I love you more. Because he does. He proved it on the cross. And our love is not pure yet. It's not just, we, we still have these unredeemed bodies. And we, we don't really even know all of our motives. Is my motive just to escape suffering? Is my motive to help people? Why do I want you know, the Lord to end his way? But the Lord has pure motives, and yet he waits. But the Bible says that his, that will be an imminent end to his waiting at some point when the rapture takes place. He will return to resurrect the dead in Christ. He will return to rapture living believers. The seven-year tribulation will unfold without a break. There's not going to be a a time when all the people of the world decide, hey, we're going to seek the Lord and the Lord will relent. Once the tribulation begins, the Bible says several times, it will, it will work itself out quickly. It lasts seven years, but it'll be quickly in the sense that it'll be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one following on another, seals, then trumpets, then bowls, as God accomplishes redeeming the humanity and restoring creation. Is Jesus waiting for you? If you're not a believer, you've never had that exchange. You're still in your sins, as it were. You don't have a transformed life. You've never been born again. You're not saved, however you want to put it. The Lord is literally waiting for you because he's not willing that you would perish eternally, but that you would find everlasting life. So I would pray today that Christians would be encouraged 
The Lord is waiting too, and you can be comforted by that. He loves you. He loves you more. He loves you 3,000, we might say. If you're not a believer, what hinders you from coming to the Lord? Who or what could be more important than eternal life? At least ask and answer that question today as we close. Let's pray.